Well, good morning, everybody. Morning, another good morning. Hello, it's good to see so many of you here again. Well, in recent years, there's something coming to the public consciousness, I think, called the bucket list. Now, in years gone by, we might have thought of a bucket list, and some of us still do, as a record of spring cleaning tasks to be performed around the house with the aid of a bucket. But no, these days, as things have moved on, you might say, a bucket list is very much a list of amazing things that we'd like to achieve or accomplish in our remaining lifetimes. Well, the Daily Mail, one of my favorite newspapers, as you might imagine, never slow to spot a bandwagon and hijack it, recently published the Great British Bucket List and reflecting the favorite things to do of its reader base. Now, although there are 60% of us, apparently, that accept that we'll never get round to doing such things, or would ever be able to afford them, or for it to be practical, the rest of us would love to do things like go to the Maldives, see the pyramids, learn a musical instrument for the first time, own a mulberry handbag. I know. Change, change career. Or the list goes on. Can you imagine? There are about 50 of these things that we would like to do, apparently. So it seems that life to the full, for some people at least, involves building such a self, uh, a self-worth and an image uh, of, of a sort of significant and achieving a almost extravagant life. The mere idea that we could achieve life to the full by staying where we are, doing what we're doing now, and being who we are, is dismissed by such aspirational lists. And the idea of a more eternal perspective to life is similarly poo-pooed by some, it would seem, at least. Yet, for all of us, whether we have such aspirations or not, as human beings, we have material needs which drive our behavior day to day. That's clear. Shelter, food, drink, social contact. We all need. They're not optional extras, but a requirement for living. And so it was in the first century Palestine. Bread was the basic stuff of life. And the day's work did not start until bread could be found. You see, breakfast might well have comprised only of bread. And lunch, quite similarly. An evening meal would have been nothing more than a bit more bread with some cheese, nuts, raw vegetables, dried fruit, occasionally a takeaway stew. We heard last week from Philip at this service how well Jesus and his disciples knew all of that, of course. And that the crowd of 5,000, actually 20,000 with wives and children thrown in, simply had to be fed. Five small loaves and two small fishes became multiplied in a meal for all. And so the crowd that had been fed on that day then followed Jesus in number the next day, which is where our reading picks up. And they are hungry again and seeking 
a repeat performance. So that's where our passage begins on that next day. And it begins with material needs. Not bucket shop needs, but the basic things of life. Now, of course, we all know that when we're hungry, there can be sometimes no sweeter sound than someone shouting that lunch is ready. And so we understand their, if I may call them slightly fishy, motives. Because we get hungry too. However, what Jesus goes on to say about himself and about God are a startling reminder to us too of the deeper and more eternal fulfillment that we find in him. So we're going to look uh, together at this passage in three main chunks. We'll look at the question that the crowd asks of Jesus and his response. We're going to look at how Jesus points to himself as God's true gift from heaven. And finally, uh, the passage regarding the bread of life and the promises that Jesus makes. And our passage, uh, if you care to look at it, um, uh, is on page, there it is, it's on page uh, 1070. There's also a sermon handout which relates to my reading. So let me begin with the question that the people ask. For me, it's the wrong question. Well, you see, Philip ended last week's talk by saying that the crowd had a flawed response to Jesus. In other words, they saw all that he'd done, but they ultimately wanted him to dance to their tune and become their king. In other words, if they could keep, if Jesus could keep their bellies full and keep the Romans, Romans at bay, then he got their vote. And there's nothing to suggest they'd learned much overnight because their pursuit of Jesus with these fishy motives is seen by him for what it is. He says, you're looking for me not because he saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. In verse 26, in other words, you're hungry again. And he points them away. Think not of the food that spoils, but the food that endures to eternal life. In other words, any bread that you might eat or have eaten, yeah, well, it'll keep you going for a while, but then you'll be hungry again in hours. But the bread I give you, it leads to eternal life. So they respond by asking him the wrong question. Effectively, what do we have to do to earn this bread? And Jesus points out that the life that he offers is obtained not by doing, not by doing, but by believing. How did you come to faith in Jesus if you're at that point? I very much doubt that you passed an exam or came to faith by reciting something or needed to cook something or compose or write or you might have done all of those things subsequently, but faith is just that, faith. It's the act of believing. In the Daily Mail list that I mentioned earlier, the verbs that occur most frequently in terms of the things that we'd like to do are all to do with going and traveling, climbing and swimming, riding or driving, owning or having. The list is about defining ourselves by what we do or what we have. Jesus says, define yourselves instead by what you believe. 
believing in the Labour Party or the monarchy or Norwich City, but by believing in Jesus, the one on whom the Father has placed his seal of approval. And when we believe in Jesus, we're meeting God's highest purpose for his people. Nothing's more important. And that doesn't mean that the life of a Christian is not one of work, of course, the opposite. But it does mean that when we believe in him, what work is necessary takes on a very different shape. So the right question, if the wrong question is about what we do, the right question that we might ask ourselves at any rate might be, how does God feed us this food that endures? And it's a question we might want to take away and mull over. We might be fed by what the Bible teaches us about him or what others say about that. We might be fed by being outdoors in nature as I was this week and seeing God in the living things that we see. We might be fed by prayer and listening to God's voice in the quiet times amidst the noise of the everyday. Or we might be fed by a sense of belonging, of being cared for and caring for others that builds us up as a family. However we're fed by God, he wants us to keep our arms and our hands outstretched so that we can receive from him and be fed in lots of different ways. So if that was the wrong question, we turn next to the idea that Jesus introduces in response, which is himself as the true gift of God. Well, if the work of God is to believe rather than do, to believe in the one that he sent, the crowd again try to press Jesus, this time asking for a sign, another miracle that they might therefore believe. And they recall the manna in the desert, the bread that came down from heaven in the exodus from Egypt of the Israelites the bread from heaven that they've been given. And Exodus 16 records that episode. And we spoke on that last year in our second series on Exodus. And in that episode, every morning, the Israelites were sustained by a fill of bread in those mornings. They'd taken as a sign that God was listening to them, present amongst them, and providing for his people during times of extreme need. And not just that, but a sample of manna was kept as a permanent community recollection of God's faithfulness. It had, after all, fed them for 40 years as they walked through the wilderness. So if manna was a sign of God's presence, then, Jesus, what sign are you going to give us? They ask him. And Jesus responds. He says, it's not Moses who has given you bread from heaven, but is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. You see, in those words, Jesus describes himself as the true bread from heaven, and he does a few things. He says, whilst the manna from heaven spoiled inside a day and melted away, Jesus is something that remains good, that does not spoil. Whilst the manna was all about giving enough energy to get through the day, Jesus points to himself as a life-giving force 
for all time. And whilst the manna left the people of Israel hungry within hours, Jesus refers to a deeper hunger inside people, implies our deeper hunger inside people, which can only be fully satisfied in him. So he's trying to take people from the realm of the physical, the immediate need, into the spiritual realm, going beyond that, and seeing himself as life-giving. How do we, as individuals, see our faith in Jesus as giving us life? It's a good question to ask, because surely life comes from food and drink, from exercising ourselves, from our paycheck or our pension, from loving and being loved by others, by our holidays and pursuits, by laughter, the joy of family. Is that not life? Well, of course it is. But Jesus points to something more than that. And that's why our parish mission is called Life to the Full. Not that we as Christians can proudly claim to have lives fuller than everybody else. But we try to point others to the life that can be found in Jesus. So I am talking about a very, very different list. I'm talking about a list that says that life comes from a sense of purpose that is part of being God's plan for the world. A hope that our death is not the end of things, but the beginning of glory. A comfort that we are loved by God, our maker, despite our mistakes. An invisible, powerful bond with all those who believe as we do. A focus for our thankfulness for the good things that we see and experience. I could go on for a very long time about the abundance of life that we find in Jesus. And that's why this talk is part of a mini-series on abundance. Because he gives us life in plenty. And these gifts from God in Jesus, the true bread who gives life to the world. So the crowd ask the wrong question, doing rather than believing. But they are shown the true gift from God the Father. Let me turn finally to the living promise. You see, Jesus' promise of the true bread from heaven isn't lost on those who are gathered. From now on, give us this bread they request. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. And he makes, in the verses that follow, a series of promises. He promises safekeeping of God's people. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away, he says. He promises a little later that those who come to him will be raised by him on the last day. And he promises that all who do so will receive eternal life and that all of that happens in accordance with the will of the Father. So Jesus here is stressing the permanence of his provision and his special role in executing God's will. This is some bread, in other words, 
Jesus promises to keep us secure and outlines our destiny. Now, it's sometimes maybe tempting to say, all of this sounds a bit too good to be true, or that Jesus' words don't chime with our experience. In a world where life to the full is commonly interpreted as swimming with dolphins or a fortnight in the Maldives, more eternal ideas can sometimes be lost, seeming too abstract or unknowable to actually affect how we live our lives day to day. I think that's where, in part, you and I come in. Can we put into words, as Gem and Rosemary were alluding to earlier, what this bread of life has brought us? Can we be made full by it? Can we describe how it carries our hope for the future? I think the telling the story course that they mentioned. In that, we heard people doing that, and it's an important exercise for all of us. I mean, I've spent more of my life not believing than I have believing. And now, even as a Christian, at times I experience surges of faith and times when I too wish there was a bit more evidence around. Like the crowd. But those times don't last long for a few reasons. And they're mixed in with this bread. Because the bread has strengthened me and given me energy in situations in which it would have been easy to give up. A combination of seeing something that really rings true to us, the truth of Scripture, or beauty in its form, puts a spring in the step. Through struggles of you know, bereavement and constant change, Bread has sustained me, but not just me. I look round this church this morning and I see lots of people for whom that's true. The bread is real and tastes good to me. I see in the bread something better than I find some, uh, elsewhere. Something with purer ingredients, a sweeter smell, and something that's being offered to me personally and to each of us personally. I see a bread that's strengthening. I see a, a bread that's offered to me. I also see a bread that I can share with others. It takes me out of myself and ourselves and our own struggles. And the life that we find in Jesus connects us with each other in a universal, non-discriminatory act of sharing. And we remember that the bread was won at a cost. That a life was given so that we might receive this bread. And when we break the bread, we remember him. And that the promises he offered on that day have been kept on the cross and through the empty tomb. That our resurrection is made firm by his. And that his death wipes away the deathly things that we harbor. The bread promises much. And the bread of life has kept his promise.